Live from New York City, it's the Gary Knoll Show. And now, your host, Gary Knoll. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll, and I'd like to welcome you to this program. Broadcasting live from our studios in New York City, but not videotaping today. We'll do that in about a week because we're getting some new equipment in. A lot to share with you today. We will be challenging the New York Times with their reassuring message that radiation is not a problem. Yes, it is. And I'll be quoting Harvey Wasserman, who I filmed in Columbus on Saturday for a major new feature film. I've been working on this film for three and a half years. However, it's only since this accident in Japan that I felt that it was necessary to push it forward and to complete it within the next three weeks, which we're doing. I'll be filming in Wales, in England, um, probably Friday of this week, and we're filming throughout the United States to show you the truth behind our deadly nuclear legacy and virtually all the statements about our nuclear program, that it's safe, it is not, it's clean and non-polluting, again, not, and that it's economical, so cheap, it won't even be able to be metered It's so cheap. To the contrary, it is the most expensive of all forms of energy. When you add in the 17 separate lines of subsidies, it comes to the industry from we, the taxpayers. So finally, everything that we need to know about our nuclear legacy will be laid out in this. I will also complete part five of my original in-depth investigative report on our deadly nuclear legacy later in the week. And I will also talk about something that you have not been told, and that is depleted uranium. And that's what's going all over Libya. Every single person living in Libya is being exposed to this deadly toxin, also thanks to our nuclear policies. The guest in the second part of my program will be Kay Heimowitz. And I'm beginning a series for the younger generation. We're going to look at the younger 20 and 30 generation and the rapid rise of young women in society and the rapid decline of young men into pre-adulthood. That's right. We're going to take a look at why so many young people have just got it wrong, and we'll try to give them some help. Plus a commentary from Chris Hedges from CommonDreams.org on the collapse of globalization. Chris Hedges, in my opinion, the best essayist in the United States today, is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author, writes regularly for Truth Dig, and is the author of War is a Force that Gives Us Meaning. It shouldn't in American fascist and empire of illusion. Needless to say, we have a lot to talk about. Let's always begin as we do with the latest cutting-edge material on health and healing. I remember training out in Colorado during the 1980s. At that time, I was uh, competing two to three times a week in any race I could find, frequently flying out to a a city where there was a national championship race because I was on a roll. It, it's one of those things when you're an athlete and you're in the zone. Training hard, 100 miles of road work plus versa climbing and gym work, and winning about 181 straight championships and setting new personal records and many state, national, and world records in the process, many of which are still 
uh, in place. In fact, I just spoke with Elliot Dimon this morning, and he's going to tell me how many of my world and American records are still in place. We know of 10 just from one source and just one distance in different age groups. We'll find out. But you don't do that unless you have a complete focus where all your energy is really in one direction. And I was told, go to Colorado. Why? Because all the top athletes in America went to Colorado to train or people wanting to be top athletes went there. And I said, why? Well, because of its altitude. So what? Well, because it's mile high. At a mile high, you're way above sea level, and you have to stress your lungs, your heart more. You have less available oxygen going in. You have to breathe harder. But then when you race at a lower altitude, that's a big advantage. On the way out in the plane, I read a book, <clears throat> and it was a book that quoted a Dr. Otto Warburg, who won a Nobel Prize as a physiologist, and his claim was that cancer does not breed as effectively, does not spread as effectively at high altitude with low oxygen as it does at low altitude. And I thought about that. Well, along comes another study. And this is just today from the Journal of Epidemiology and Community Health. And by the way, my training out there I thought was uh, really a lot of fun. And everywhere I looked, I saw bikers and joggers everywhere. I've never seen that many not in Central Park training. And these were some of the elite athletes in the world. These were some really terrific athletes. <clears throat> and they all said that's, you know, that, that, that's what you need. You need to train at high altitudes. And later when I competed in the Los Angeles Marathon, the first Los Angeles Marathon, and we kept being told that the, the toughest competitors that we'd be racing against were from Mexico because they trained in Mexico City, which was very high altitude. And sure enough, uh, they went out like bullets, just really went out fast. And Franco Pantone, who I was training with and we were racing side by side, said, we'll never catch them. And I said, oh, yeah, been training in Colorado. We'll catch them. And sure enough, at the 18 or 19 mile mark, caught him, passed him, won the gold. And uh, and I said to any athlete, train at high altitudes, then you get super training. That's just a general information, but it also helps for living. Now, here's the issue. This is from Science Daily. This is from the University of Colorado School of Medicine. Quote, living at high altitude reduces the risk of dying from heart disease. All forms of heart disease. Low oxygen spurs genes to create blood vessels. I'll quote this. And one of the most comprehensive studies of its kind, researchers at the University of Colorado School of Medicine in partnership with Harvard School of Global Health have found that people living at higher altitudes have a lower chance of dying from heart disease, heart attack, and tend to live longer lives than others. And so that's good information. So, And they compared that with 20 other countries and found that it was also true in other countries where people living at higher altitudes. Preference for junk food is acquired by offspring during pregnancy. Listen to this. This is from the uh, a major scientific journal. It says, new research suggests that pregnant mothers who eat high sugar and high fat diets have babies who are likely to become junk food junkies themselves. According to the report, 
They said this happens because the high-fat and high-sugar diet leads to changes in the fetal's brain reward pathways, altering food preferences. Not only does this offer insight into the ever-increasing rate of human obesity, but it also explains why some people easily resist fatty and sugary foods, while others seem hopelessly addicted. Quote, this is from the Research Center in the School of Agriculture, Food and Wine at the University of Adelaide in Australia. These results will help us better to import information to women about dieting during pregnancy and breastfeeding for giving their infants the best start in life. So that's important to know. Now, it was also true that this goes back to the 1970s. And Dr. Lawrence Lashan, a great psychologist, who said that you are what you think. And he was so certain of the power of your thought upon your physical health that he said that after interviewing a group of women based upon their sense of self-esteem, they could predict which women were most likely to develop breast cancer. All other things aside, in other words, you, you, you resolve the issue of smoking, drinking, or any other risk factors. If you just took a group of otherwise completely healthy women who had no history of breast cancer, no genetic predisposition, those most likely to get breast cancer were likely because they did not have true self-love and felt themselves a victim. Later, this work was picked up and expanded where you could actually show pro-inflammatory conditions like arthritis. For example, the author of that study said that women who felt that they were not appreciated for the work they did for other people in their own families, like cooking and cleaning and laundry, and were just taken advantage of, were women most likely to get arthritis. Now, we know that there are many other contributing factors, but until that time we had not even thought that the mind would play a part in these diseases. Now we know that the mind plays a part in all diseases. So, two interesting studies, and both very, very important for us. So it also means that as a woman is pregnant, and I've explained this so many times, in fact, I did a a book, uh, it's out of print now, it was How to Have a Healthy Pregnancy. And I took a group of women who, first a group of women who were infertile and couldn't get pregnant, and after two years, over 80% were able to get pregnant just by changing their behavior, lifestyle, and nutrient levels and toxic levels. Then a separate study, and this study was that I believe that before people have intended pregnancies, that they should take at least a year or two to completely detoxify their body because anything you have in your body, lead, cadmium, mercury, will impact the developing fetus. Viruses, bacteria, nutritional imbalances, hormonal imbalances, things we don't even think about, all will impact the developing fetus. Now, when you see that one in three American Um, pregnancies end in miscarriage and that a high percentage of those that don't end up with children that are being born with learning disabilities or somewhere on the autism spectrum, uh, then we realize that, gee whiz, this is a big blind spot in going, uh, going about pregnancy. But I also thought that we should do something else. At one time, we had 7 million American children that were orphaned. 
That meant 14 million adults should not have had that child. They were not fit parents. Now think of how many parents have children and do not give undivided and unconditional love and time to the child. Now you look at all the children today who have been given nannies or preschool, kindergarten. Someone is always watching after them except their parents. What role do you think that that giving a guardian your child's time and attention, what do you think that does? Last week I filmed a person who is the, the nanny for a very famous scientist and who said that this she babysits for about 12 hours a day and the mother's so busy being so famous and earning money and, and uh, research grants for the place where she works that by the time she gets home the child's asleep when she's off the child's asleep she rarely ever sees her child and even on the weekends she's frequently traveling so the nanny's own uh, 18 year old daughter then babysits on the weekends and she says you have no idea what it's like when you become the, the mother because the child's looking at you you're giving their attention and love and affection the mother thinks she's a great mother because she can afford to pay me $20 an hour to take care of her kid all day without realizing that there's going to be a price to pay at some point emotionally when this daughter grows up and says, you weren't there. <clears throat> Think of how many baby boomers had children who got so tied up, so busy in their own insecurity of trying to overachieve that their children got left behind, not financially, not materialistically, but emotionally and spiritually. So my idea and the advice I give individuals is before you become a parent, as a, as a husband-to-be, as a father-to-be, go out and become a big brother. There are millions of young men that would love to have a, a person to care with them and to grow with them and to help them and, and to mentor them in life. And yet at the end of the day, you go home. You continue your life. And the child goes back to the center wherever they're, they're staying. And the same with every woman. Before you think you're going to be the ideal mother because you have all these maternal thoughts, why don't you become a big sister to another child that would really appreciate the love and the attention you could give? And I'd be willing to bet that at least 70% of the men and women who thought that it would be a great idea to have a child, well, when they actually become dependent at some level, realize it's not for them. But that's the time to make that call, not after you end up having a child. That's my own thoughts, however. Next up, good news for those of you who've been using intravenous vitamin C. I'm a major advocate of that because I've seen it save people's lives. I've seen it reverse age-defining illnesses and cancer in stage and hepatitis. Major accomplishments, not just in a few, but in thousands. Here's the latest. This is from uh, a, a Royden Clinic they, in the public Journal of Translational Medicine, a collaboration between Orthodox oncologists and medical practitioners and basic researchers proposing new uses of intravenous vitamin C for treatment of cancer. 
in the paper, they're discussing how intravenous vitamin C, which, by the way, is a high-dose vitamin C, 50,000, 100,000, can help treat a lot of the inflammation associated with cancer that you could not possibly get into your body using an oral cancer. It can help stop cachexia, which is the wasting away. It helps improve immune suppression. In other words, so your body's better able to fight cancer. It improves quality of life. And there's 246 separate scientific references showing that this works. So there's good, 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 good science behind intravenous vitamin C. And thank goodness some orthodox oncologists are finally getting around to using it. And for those of you who've been using the high-fiber diet, about 40 to 50 grams a day, I'm suggesting here's the latest on this. And this is uh, published in a mainstream medical journal. And um, it's from the, uh, the American Heart Association's Nutrition, Physical Activity, and Metabolism, Cardiovascular Disease, Epidemiology, and Prevention Scientific Session. Quote, high-fiber diet linked with reduced lifetime cardiovascular disease risk. Quote, the results are pretty amazing, said Dr. Ning. Younger 20 to 39-year-old and middle-aged 40 to 60-year-old adults with the highest fiber intake compared to those with the lowest fiber intake showed a statistically significant lower lifetime risk of cardiovascular disease. So once again, have your fiber and save yourself a heart attack. And finally, I'm always interested in the berries and the latest studies. Here's the latest. And this is um, from Boston University, a Dr. Vita. And it says, cranberries show heart-healthy benefits. Why? Because the polyphenol-rich cranberry juice boots heart health by alleviating arterial stiffness. This was done at Boston Tufts University. And um, double-strength cranberry contained about 800 milligrams of total polyphenols and said it improved the measure of arterial stiffness and called carotid femoral pulse wave velocity, which means, and this was published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition, what it means is imagine a, imagine a water hose. It's very new and soft and flexible. That's good. Now imagine it's set in the sun for a year and it's stiff. That's bad. The same is true with your arteries. The softer, more pliable your arteries are, the easier it is for blood to get through, nutrients to get through. The stiffer they become, the easier it is to have calcium build up, lesions to build up, and that leads to heart disease. So cranberries, unsweetened cranberry juice, can make a difference. Oh, one other thing. Walnuts also now are the top nut, according to this latest study, from the American Chemical Society, published in Science Daily. Walnuts are the number one healthy nut in the United States. Quote, walnuts rank above peanuts, almonds, pecans, pistachios, and other nuts, said Dr. Vinson, who did the analysis. A handful of walnuts contains almost twice as much antioxidants as the equivalent amount of any other commonly consumed nut. Plus, it also has good fats in it, which help the heart. So have your walnuts, throw them in a blender, smoothie, throw them in a hot cereal, throw them in a salad. Back in a moment.
then some news from the board's report. Uh, Colonel Gaddafi bans journalists, arguing it's work for Fox. Quote from Tripoli. Libyan dictator Gaddafi took the extraordinary step of banning all journalists from his country today. According to advisors to the Libyan dictator, Gaddafi has been studying the Fox News channel closely in recent weeks as an example of how a large enterprise has thrived in the absence of journalism. Colonel Gaddafi has made no secret of his admiration of Fox News, said one aide. He has even told his nurses to wear more makeup so they'll look more like Fox anchorwomen. Speaking over Libyan state television this morning, Gaddafi said that by expelling all journalists from Libya, he was protecting the Libyan people from, quote, the bias and distortions of lamestream media. Libyan dictator said he was establishing a no-spin zone over the entire country, placing all actual news with a series of television shows allowing for a free exchange of opinions, all of them his. Gaddafi's actions drew immediate criticism from Fox owner Rupert Murdoch, a brutal dictator who is hostile to journalism is definitely what well, sounds like he's ripping me off, says Fox, uh, Rupert Murdoch. At the State Department, an official spokesperson offered this response to Mr. Gaddafi's actions. Quote, as his State Department policy, we will wait several weeks or months, then issue a confusing, noncommittal statement. Meanwhile, several prominent Republicans voiced criticism of President Obama's Libyan policy, including former President George Bush, who urged Mr. Obama to define the mission. That way you can hang up a really cool banner once it's accomplished. And Michelle Bachman said that she also has serious questions of Mr. Obama about Libya. She asked, where is Libya? I'm Gary Nall. Now to the issue of radiation. And this is a response to the New York Times from Fairness and Accuracy in Reporting. The radioactive plume from Japan floating from west to east across the United States is absolutely nothing to worry about, writes William Broad in the New York Times report today. The title of the article is Radiation Over the U.S. is Harmless, officials say, about the radiation threats posed by the Japanese nuclear plant reactor. Health experts said the plume's radiation has been diluted enormously in its journey of thousands of miles and that, at least for now, with concentrations so low, its presence will have no health effects that are negative to the United States. In a similar way, faint radiation from the Chernobyl disaster spread across the globe and reached the West in 10 days, its levels detectable but minuscule. Okay, there's two things completely wrong with Mr. Broad's report in the New York Times. One, he doesn't quote or even name any health experts in the piece. And when he later elaborates on the claim that radiation from the Japanese uh, reactors will have no health consequences in the United States, he cites the Department of Energy. Well, hello, the Department of Energy is known to be 100% pro-nuclear and not at all in the truth. And two, in saying that small amounts of radiation are safe, he seems to be embracing the industry-favored th threshold model of radiation risks. That view holds that below a certain level of radiation exposure, no health dangers posed. That's at odds with the National Academy of Sciences and several other science associations that holds there is no such threshold and that any exposure of any amount of radiation at any time poses additional risks of cancer. And the greater exposure, the greater the risk. The linear, no-threshold model isn't universally embraced, but it's the prevailing view in the scientific circles. Now, I just finished filming in Columbus over the weekend Harvey Wasserman on our new feature film on radiation. 
Here's what Harvey Wasserman has to say. Safe levels of radiation is a lethal lie. There is no safe dose of radiation. We do not x-ray pregnant women. Any detectable fallout can kill. With erratic radiation spikes, quote, major air and water emissions and at least three reactors and waste pools as serious danger at the plants, we must prepare for the worst. When you hear terms safe and insignificant reference to radiation fallout, ask yourself, safe for whom? Insignificant to which of us? Despite the corporate media, what has and will continue to come from Japan is deadly to Americans. At the very least, it threatens countless embryos and fetuses in utero. The infants, the elderly, the unborn who will come to future mothers are now being exposed. No matter how small the dose, the human egg is waiting, or embryo, or fetus in utero, or newborn infant, or weakened elder, has no defense against even the tiniest radioactive assault. Science has never found a safe threshold, and never will. In the 1950s, Dr. Alice Stewart, who, by the way, I was just reviewing a film I shot of her, and she'll be in her last film, in fact, before she passed, she'll be in this new film, and she showed a definitive link and was the first doctor in the world to do so between medical x-rays administered to pregnant women and the curse of childhood leukemia among their offspring. After a fierce 30-year debate, the medical profession agreed. Today, administering an x-ray to a pregnant woman is universally understood to be a serious health hazard. Those who pioneered the health physics profession, towering greats like Dr. Carl Z. Morgan and Dr. John Goffman, both of whom are in this special, set a definitive, impenetrable standard. A safe dose of radiation does not exist. All doses, insignificant or otherwise, can harm the human organism. And there has been repeatedly shown in major studies, done most notably by Dr. Ernest Sternglass, Dr. Jay Gould, and Joe Magna- uh, Mangano, and uh, Arnie Gunderson, and Stephen Wing, uh, and others, showing that among human populations near commercial reactors, infant death rates plummet once the reactors shut down. In 1972, 30 years, 30 years ago, this March 28th, the owners of the Three Mile Island said there was no meltdown, no serious radiation release, and no need for evacuation. All of those were lies. To this day, no one knows how much radiation was released, or where it went, or who it killed. Three Mile Island's owners ran ads dismissing the emissions as the equivalent of a single chest x-ray given to everyone within a 10-mile radius. But that included all the pregnant women. Soon infant death rates soared in nearby Harrisburg. Some 2,400 central Pennsylvania families sued based upon the health impacts. In 1980, I interviewed dozens of these people. Cancer, leukemia, birth defects, stillbirths, sterility, malformations, open lesions, hair loss, a metabolic taste, and much, much more were among the symptoms. The death and mutation rate among farm and wild animals was also thoroughly documented by the Pennsylvania Department of Agriculture and a team of investigators from the Baltimore News American. We were again told there were no health dangers from radiation that hit California from Chernobyl 10 days after that 1986 explosion. But bird uh, births at the Point Reyes National Seashore quickly dropped 60% from the levels that had been carefully monitored and recorded throughout previous decade. The cloud then crossed the northern tier of the United States. Heightened radiation levels were found in milk in New England, as they were throughout Europe from clouds that had been blown from Chernobyl in 
the other direction. The doses were neither insignificant nor safe to those far and near. In Russia, ten years later, I interviewed dozens of downwind victims, many of the 800,000 liquidators who ran into Chernobyl's seething corpse to help clean it up. After Three Mile Island, it was deja vu all over again. The most recently published findings from a compendium of more than 5,000 studies indicate a global Chernobyl death toll in excess of 985,000 and still counting. Today we are assaulted by yet another radioactive death cloud from yet another perfectly safe nuclear plant, and it's pouring into the air and sky. The operators have reported radiation levels a million times normal, then retracted the estimate to a mere 100,000 times normal. Workers are being exposed to doses that are certain to be lethal. At least three of the reactors and one or more of the spent fuel pools hover at the brink of catastrophe. So that's the truth on that. I'm Gary Nall, back in a moment with commentary. Welcome, all of you. I'm Gary Nall. What's really concerned me more than anything else when I hear about Davos and the different groups of individuals meeting to talk about the global economy and where we're going and our health standards and whether we need genetically engineered crops in all the countries of the world in order to save the population from starvation and the importance of privatizing water so it will be better managed and privatizing electricity and privatizing roads and privatizing fuel uh, disbursements in, in third world countries in the United States and privatizing prisons and privatizing schools is because if you look carefully and honestly and diligently and historically, you see that they were wrong on all of their predictions. Commentary from Chris Hedges from CommonDreams.org on the collapse of globalization. The uprisings in the Middle East, the unrest that is tearing apart nations such as the Ivory Coast, the bubbling discontent in Greece, Ireland, Britain, and the labor disputes in states such as Wisconsin and Ohio, persuade a collapse of globalization. This persuades a world where vital resources, including food and water, jobs and security, are becoming scarcer and harder to obtain. They persuade growing misery for hundreds of millions of people who find themselves trapped in failed states, suffering escalating violence and crippling poverty. They persuade increasingly draconian controls and force. Just take a look at what's being done to Private Bradley Manning, used to protect the corporate elite who are orchestrating our demise. We must embrace and embrace rapidly a radical new ethic of simplicity and rigorous protection of our ecosystem, especially the climate, or we will all be holding on to life by our fingertips. As an aside, it is my belief that based upon the thousands of mini earthquakes, one hitting a 5.0 in Arkansas, the major gas fracking that is going on, drilling for gas and drilling through different uh, levels that should not have been drilled uh, through, and also what we did in the Gulf and the over 26,000 oil rigs we have dug in the Gulf, that there is a connection between 
many of these events. I'll be dealing with that on an upcoming program. I believe that it is now time that we took a step back and thought carefully and ask, are we a part of any movement that demands the resources of the state and the nation provide for the welfare of all citizens and the heavy hand of state power be employed to prohibit the plunder by the corporate power elite? We must view the corporate capitalist who have seized control of our money, our food, our energy, our education, our press, our health care system, and our governance as enemies to be challenged. Adequate food, clean water, and basic security are already beyond the reach of perhaps half the world's population. Food prices have risen 61% globally since December 2008. According to the International Monetary Fund, the price of wheat has exploded more than doubling in the last eight months to $8.56 a bushel. When half of your income is spent on food, as it is in countries such as Yemen, Egypt, Tunisia, and the Ivory Coast, price increases of this magnitude bring with them malnutrition and starvation. Food prices in the United States have risen over the past three months at an annualized rate of 5%. There are some 40 million poor in the United States who devote 35% of their after-tax incomes to pay for food. As the cost of fossil fuel climbs, as climate change continues to disrupt agricultural production, and as populations and unemployment swell, we will find ourselves convulsed in more global and domestic unrest. Food riots and political protests will be inevitable, but it will not necessarily mean more democracy. The refusal by all of our liberal institutions, including the press, universities, labor, and democratic party, to challenge the utopian assumptions that the marketplace should determine human behavior permits corporations and investment firms to continue their assault, including speculating on commodities to drive up their prices. I've said many times on this program that I believe that we should outlaw all trading in any commodity essential to life. You ban permanently trading in all, all food, water, oil, gas, and currencies. It permits coal and oil and natural gas corporations to stymie alternative energy and emit deadly levels of greenhouse gases. It permits agribusiness to divert corn and soybeans to ethanol production and crush systems of local, sustainable, and organic agriculture. It permits the war industry to drain half of all state expenditures, generate trillions in deficit, and profit from conflicts in the Middle East we have no chance of winning. It permits corporations to evade the most basic controls and regulations to cement into place a global neo-feudalism. The last people who should be in charge of our food supply or our social and political life, not to mention the welfare of sick children, are corporate capitalists and Wall Street speculators. But none of this is going to change until we turn our backs on the Democratic Party, denounce the orthodoxies peddled in our universities and in the press by corporate apologists and construct our opposition to the corporate state from the ground up. It will not be easy, it will take time, and it will require us to accept the status of social and political pariahs, especially as the lunatic fringe of our political establishment steadily gains power. The corporate state has nothing to offer the left or the right but fear, and it uses fear. Fear of secular humanism, yes. Fear of progressivism, yes. To turn the population into passive accomplices. As long as we remain afraid, nothing changes. 
Frederick von Hyatt and Milton Friedman, two of the more major architects of unregulated capitalism, should never have been taken seriously. But the wonders of corporate propaganda and corporate funding turned these fringe figures into revered prophets in our universities, think tanks, the press, legislative bodies, courts, and corporate boardrooms. We still endure the cant of their discredited economic theories, even as Wall Street sucks the U.S. Treasury dry and engages once again in the speculation that has to date evaporated some $40 trillion in global wealth. We are taught by all systems of information to chant the mantra that the market knows best. It does not matter, as writers such as John Ralston Saul have pointed out, that every one of globalism's promises has turned out to be a lie. It does not matter that economic inequality has gotten worse and that most of the world's wealth has become concentrated in a few hands. It does not matter that the middle class, the beating heart of any democracy, is disappearing and the rights and wages of the working class have fallen into precipitous decline as labor regulations, protections of our manufacturing base and labor unions have been demolished. It does not matter that corporations have used the deconstruction of trade barriers as a mechanism for massive tax evasion, a technique that allows conglomerates such as General Electric to avoid paying any taxes. It does not matter that corporations are exploiting and killing the ecosystem on which the human species depends for life. The steady barrage of illusions disseminated by corporate systems of propaganda in which words are often replaced with music and images are impervious to truth. Faith in the marketplace replaces all others, and those who dissent, from Ralph Nader to Noam Chomsky, are banished as heretics. The aim of the corporate state is not to feed, clothe, or house the masses, but to shift all economic, social, and political power and wealth into the hands of the tiny corporate elite. It is to create a world where the heads of corporations make $900,000 an hour and four-job families struggle to survive. The corporate elite achieves its aim of greater and greater profit by weakening, dismantling government agencies and taking over destroying public institutions. Mercenary armies, a for-profit health care and insurance industry, outsourcing every facet of government work from clerical tasks to intelligence, feed the corporate beast at our expense. The dissemination of labor unions, the twisting of education into mindless vocational training, and the slashing of social services leave us ever more enslaved to the whims of corporations. The intrusion of corporations into the public sphere destroys the concept of the common good. It erases the lines between public and private interest, and it creates a world that is defined exclusively by naked self-interest. The ideological proponents of globalism, Thomas Friedman, Daniel Jurgen, Ben Bernanke, Alan Greenspan, Anthony Giddens, Hillary and Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, are stunted products of the self-satisfied materialistic power elite. They use the utopian ideology of globalism as a moral justification for their own comfort, self-absorption, and privilege. They do not question the imperial projects of the nation, the widening disparities in wealth and security between themselves as members of the world's industrialized elite and the rest of the planet. They embrace globalism because it, like most philosophical and theoretical ideologies, justifies their privilege and power. They believe that globalism is not an ideology, but an expression of an incontrovertible truth, and because the truth has been uncovered, all competing economic and political visions are dismissed from public debate before they are even heard. 
The defense of globalism marks a disturbing rupture in American intellectual life. The collapse of the global economy in 1929 discredited the proponents of deregulated markets. It permitted alternative visions, many of them products of movements that once existed in the United States, to be heard, but not today. We adjusted to economic and political reality. The capacity to be critical of political and economic assumptions resulted in the New Deal, this dismantling of corporate monopolies and heavy government regulations of banks and corporations. But this time around, because corporations control the organs of mass communication, and because thousands of economists, business school professors, financial analysts, journalists, and corporate managers have staked their credibility on the utopianism of globalization, we speak to each other in gibberish. We continue to heed the advice of Alan Greenspan, who believed the third-rate novelist Anne Wren, completely psychotic person, was an economic prophet. Or Larry Summers, who deregulated our banks as Treasury Secretary under Bill Clinton and helped snuff out $17 trillion in wages and retirement benefits and personal savings. We are assured by presidential candidates like Mitt Romney that more tax breaks for corporations would entice them to move their overseas profits back to the United States to create new jobs. This idea comes from a former hedge fund manager whose personal fortune was amassed largely by firing workers and only illustrates how rational political discourse has descended into mindless sound bites. We are seduced by childish happy talk. Who wants to hear that we are advancing not towards a paradise of happy consumption and personal prosperity, but a disaster? Who wants to confront a future in which the rapacious and greedy appetites of our global elite, who have failed to protect the planet, threaten to produce widespread anarchy, famine, environmental catastrophe, nuclear terrorism, and wars for diminishing resources? Who wants to shatter the myth that the human race is evolving morally, that it can continue its giddy plundering of non-renewable resources and its prolificate levels of consumption, that capitalist expansion is eternal and will never cease? Dying civilizations often prefer hope, even absurd hope, to truth. It makes life easier to bear. It lets them turn away from the hard choices ahead to bask in the comforting certitude that God or science or the market will be their salvation. This is why these apologists for globalism continue to find a following, and their systems of propaganda have built a vast global Potemkin village to entertain us, the tens of millions of impoverished Americans whose lives and struggles rarely make it into television are invisible. So are most of the world's billions of poor, crowded into fetid slums. We do not see those who die from drinking contaminated water or being unable to afford medical care. We do not see those being foreclosed from their homes. We do not see the children go to bed hungry. We busy ourselves with the absurd. We invest our emotional life in reality shows that celebrate excess, hedonism, and wealth. We are tempted by the opulent life enjoyed by the American oligarchy, 1% of whom control more wealth than the bottom 90%. Note that none of this has to be. This is a message that defies human nature and human history. But is what many desperately want to believe. We are believing in the illusions. Chris Hedges, back in a moment. Please stay with us. I'd like to welcome my guest, Kay Heimowitz. He is a William, S., uh, William E. Simon Fellow at the Manhattan Institute and contributing editor to City Journal. 
and over the years she's focused her research on writing on issues concerning childhood and family and gender relationships and poverty and cultural transformations occurring in the U.S. And uh, she is also the author of Manning Up, How the Rise of Women is Turning Men into Boys. Nice to have you with us, Day Kay. Well, thank you for having me. Kay, let's begin with the two major observations you make regarding the divisions between genders, let's say in the 20- and 30-year-old group. First, young men, or what you're calling child men, uh, have become increasingly stuck in a pre-adulthood that differs greatly from the earlier generations, like the Great Depression or World War II parents, or even the 60s boomer generation, for that matter. And second, we are witnessing a rapid rise in social standing of young women, which is a good thing, that's exceeding their male counterparts in levels of education, salaries, and quality jobs, even maturity. For each of these trends, what do you contribute being the primary factors in a modern American society, including what is now a norm in family culture? Well, I see one of the major uh, causes of these, both of these shifts as being what I call, what economists sometimes refer to as the knowledge economy. The knowledge economy, which is based on uh, the use of uh, brain work, that is, you know, thinking, calculating, creating, designing, uh, requires a lot more education than uh, jobs have in the past. So uh, we've had an increase, of course, in the percentage of people going to college, uh, and many of those people uh, then go on for postgraduate training, uh, professional training, and, and so forth. And even those who don't uh, often find themselves in the early stages of their career uh, having to move around a lot, maybe move from job to job, from city to city, even from country to country, so that there's a great deal of mobility making it more difficult uh, for them to, as we used to call it, settle, settle down. So marriage uh, marriage rates are um, though still uh, pretty strong in this age group. Uh, marriage takes place much later than it had in the past, uh, and um, uh, it also means that people just you know they don't buy homes as as uh, early as they might have and settle down into into a community. Uh, so that's that's the major cause from my point of view the, the knowledge economy. How much should we blame? Our entertainment culture, the sick role models portrayed on on the screen and television, and also the worst side of the Internet that makes mindless adolescent material a lifestyle to emulate. We certainly can blame it. On the other hand, they're giving people what they want. I mean, you know, these uh, characters that I talk about in the in the book, the uh, child man characters like Adam Sandler or Seth Rogen uh, or Will Ferrell, uh, you begin to see a lot of them in the 90s uh, and um, an increase in the number of lad magazines, as they call them in England, the Maxim magazine and that sort of thing. Um, and my reading of it is that that was the period during which the media f- discovered this new demographic of young men in their 20s who had a little bit of money in their pocket, not much in many cases, but enough to buy video games and uh, and Maxim magazine for that matter. Uh, and uh, the young men went for it, and uh, uh, that means that the media will then produce more of it. So. 
that's my view of what of what was happening in the 90s and i do think that that was a period, that was a kind of um a dividing line between uh um the stage before pre-adulthood and after it's also the same time that you see television shows like um uh friends and seinfeld all of these pre-adult uh, shows that indicate that some some new demographic was uh, was appearing in our midst. Should women also be more responsible in what they encourage in adolescent behavior in men simply by dating them? <laughs> You know, it's it's not a popular thing to say, but in fact, I do think that women are doing some enabling here. Um, look, first of all, let me be clear that not all pre-adult men are child men, not by any means. But there has been the emergence of a, of this character in the in not just in the popular media, but in the uh, in the in the wider culture. Uh, you have um, women complaining about this in on in, um uh, practically every singles book out there. I mean, you, you know, the uh, the men who won't commit, who uh, are always cheating on them, and always uh, and, and frequently slackers. Um, so, you know, in so far as women um, do continue to date those men, maybe with the expectation they'll change them, or maybe with just uh, just because they find it fun, sure, that becomes a kind of enabling. Men have always, uh, in, the, in uh, their 20s, uh, when they were at an age to be thinking about uh, finding a mate, uh, had to behave according to what, you know, what women demanded of him. So, yeah, that certainly has changed, yeah. One of my concerns is that when children, and I talked about this earlier in the show, when when children will be raised in the homes of married couples, especially today, younger generation, how emotionally fit are they to be raising a child if they themselves are not emotionally fit? Because everything that occurs within the home, even the developing fetus, is going to make an impact upon that developing child, as compared to, let's say, with a future, with a former period of the baby boomers um, and what it was like to be raised then and give us your ideas on this please uh, well if, if you're referring to the um, fact that people are working so hard and 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 not uh, focused on family life I'm not sure that that uh, that is altogether true um, there's a tremendous longing in this generation younger generation to marry and settle down eventually uh, they seem men and women seem to be on different um, on different schedules as far as uh, those things are concerned which is one of the themes of my book uh, but but it is something that they want and it tends to be you know the the our middle and upper middle classes are very very child focused as as uh, uh, sometimes to a fault, as, as many many of your listeners probably know. Well, what I see is I see an awful lot of disturbed children. I see children whose parents gave them materially, but not emotionally and spiritually, and that and and not in quality times. I don't believe just everybody should be going out there having children. Otherwise, we're, when does it end? When does a person step back and ask, is their need for a child a selfish act to perpetuate their own gene and ego pool, or are they looking at how many children in the world could be? loved if they chose to adopt a child well you know i i think that the urge to have a child is something very very deep in our natures um and i'm not sure that to call it selfish i i'm not sure that i would 
uh, agree with that. I mean, if nothing else, um, there is the fact that to have a child and raise a child, it requires a tremendous amount of self-sacrifice, uh, at least uh, the sacrifice of certain kinds of pleasures. Uh, and uh, if anything, it seems to me that you're more likely to find uh, more narcissistic types who don't want to have children uh because they they don't like they don't like the idea of having to attend to somebody else's needs as much as is required when you have kids so um and as for the increase in disturbance it's hard to know about these things isn't it because you know it's all so much culturally determined that is uh if we now see an increase in um ADHD for instance this is something we hear a great deal about is that really something that's happened uh, is or in in a in an objective sense or is it something we're noticing because of the kind of culture we are and the kinds of things we're demanding from our young children in school well that's for each t- school teacher and parent to define for themselves because we do not have any existing science on that, unfortunately. We're out of time. Thank you very much, Kay Heimowitz, for sharing your thoughts. The book is Manning Up, How the Rise of Women is Turning Men into Boys. I'm Gary Knoll. Thank you all for listening. I look forward to sharing more on our next program. Show is produced in our New York City studio. The producer is Richard Gale. The engineer is Matt Bogart. All shows are archived by Joe Kemp. The chief archivist is Sharon Pride, and the program director is Jason Tavenfeld.